Good morning, church. Peace be with you. I'm not sure if, uh, if Lyle said I had 12 kids between four and six, but I have four kids between 12 and six. I'm not sure there. But why don't you pray with me as we get, we get started this morning? Father, we are uh, grateful and thankful for the opportunity to gather, um, to, to learn and, and grow from your word. We're thankful that we can go and celebrate what you have done as we've already done this morning. Pray that you would be here, your spirit would be with us um, this morning, that you would fill this room, and, uh, and Father, you would, you would give me the words you want me to share, and what words you would prefer I didn't, that I would forget them now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. This is, it's actually kind of an honor. This is, a, this is kind of a big, big day, or almost a big day uh, in the history of the church. Uh, it is the day before the day before, uh, October 31st. Um, that that mean, for kids, that may mean, hey, uh, that's a great day to get free candy, to go begging with your neighbors. Um, um, but for the church, uh, it's actually a pretty big day. Um, 500 years ago, uh, on October 31st in uh, 1517, uh, there was an event that would change the course in the history of the church. And without that, um, we would not be here today. Um, if, if you're not familiar with what happened, there was a, there was a monk uh, in, in the uh, medieval Catholic church. His name was Martin Luther. That name might ring a bell. Um, and on, on October 31st, 1517, he nailed a piece of paper to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but that act would start um, or would be considered one of the sparks of um, what we know now as the Protestant Reformation. Um, the fact that we are here as Protestant, uh, Protestant church um, is uh, in part because of this act. Now, if you weren't familiar with what was happening with Martin Luther at that time and what was going on in the church, um, you would have to assume that that was a pretty important piece of paper that he nailed to the door, wouldn't you think? Um, what would cause such an uproar that you would have this essentially a split, pro Protestant meaning protest, Reformation, the, the, the protested Reformation of the church? How would this get kicked off by this piece of paper that he nails to a door? My imagination goes to, well, this must have been a big deal. I mean, maybe it was like his resignation letter and, and, it, and it flamed his old boss, right? He was upset and he nails his resignation letter. Maybe that would get people upset. Um, maybe it was the threat of, a, of an open letter on Facebook. You guys seen these? To whom it may concern. You know, was it, was it an open letter? Was he trying to take the church down? What was going on? Well, that's, that's, not, that's not what was going on for Martin Luther. He, what he nailed to the door of the church was uh, what he called 95 Thesis, which just means 95 ideas. And what, what Martin Luther was trying to do was he was, he was asking for a debate. Um, if you actually um, read the letter that he puts up, I mean, he's just saying, I would like to debate these ideas. We have some issues within the church. I would like to debate these ideas. And he's so polite in the way that he does it. He says, if you can't be there, could you just write a note um, and, and, and write a, a written response to these ideas? I mean, this doesn't seem like something that would cause such a stir, but it causes such a stir because of who he's asking to debate. And he's asking to debate the medieval Catholic Church. At this point in history, they, they are a big deal. This isn't like going to your boss 
and uh, having a fight with your boss and, and the threat of being fired. This isn't like uh, getting in a fight with the government and there's the threat of being arrested. When you went up against the Catholic Church in, in 1500, um, you, were, uh, you were risking death itself. And not, if there is a good way to die, um, not in a good way. Uh, they would tie you to a stake and light you on fire. Like that's, that's a pretty bad way to go, right? Like if you ever get to your, if, if you're ever in a church meeting and you get to the place where you think, hey, it's okay to do that, um, we've, we've lost our way as a church, okay? <laughs> so hopefully that doesn't come up uh, in the elder meetings. But we've lost our way, right? And the question is, well, well, what would possess someone like Martin Luther to do that? He's a monk in the church. Why would, if he knew that that's what was at risk? I mean, that's such, um, um, that's such a drastic and, and in some ways reckless decision to say, I, I want to debate these ideas. Because men had come before him that had similar ideas. And you know where they are now? And Luther's time, they're no longer. They've either been chased out or they have been killed. So what would possess him to do that? You know, um, if, you read the, if you read the beginning of the 95 Theses, this is what it says. And uh, I think they'll put it up there. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read the first line. He says, out of love for the truth and from a desire to explain it. That's what motivated him. Martin Luther had run into the truth and it was so compelling to him that it could not be ignored. It wasn't a relative idea to Martin Luther. He said once he, once he understood the truth, that now we need to reckon with the truth. We need to talk about this because there's things that we're doing in the church that don't reflect what is in the Bible. See, Luther was convinced of the truth and he was compelled to risk everything to preserve the truth. So this morning, the question for us is, what is that source of truth for us that once, we, once we've established it, we've got to reckon with it? Now, I'm not going to ask any of you to put your life on the line this morning so you all can relax, shake it out a little bit. But, but this morning, we're, I, I want to think about this idea. What, what is that ultimate source of truth for you? Like when you're like, man, when I need to know if something's true, here's where I go. How many people go to Google? You're going to go figure it out. Google is going to tell me. Maybe now you don't even have to go to your computer. You just say, Alexa, tell me the truth, right? You guys do that? I'm sure George Orwell is rolling in his grave right now. Like you're putting them in your home. They listen all the time. That's what I was warning you. Right, sorry. If you don't understand what I'm talking about there, that's okay. Um, I put down Wikipedia. You know, does anyone go to Wikipedia? And I was like, man, that probably makes me seem old. Uh, do, do millennials go to Wikipedia anymore? Uh, but the idea behind Wikipedia was um, if you want to know truth, then you just, you just figure out what everybody's opinions are. And, it, and the majority opinion establishes truth. That's a wild idea. Kind of starts to undermine truth, right? Um, I had my, my sons in here, um, my 12-year-old and 11-year-old son were in here for the first service. And, and, um, and this has become an issue uh, with them as, uh, as sometimes we have conversations and, and the question is like, like, where, where do they go for truth? And we'll be having a conversation, and they'll ask me a question, and I'll tell them the answer. Um, and then every once in a while, I'll get this, well, yeah, Dad, but I was talking to my friend at school, and Sandy Plankton says, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Sandy Plankton? 
you don't know that reference, that's from Finding Nemo. If you don't laugh at that joke, they're not going to get better. Um, but there's an issue. My, my, you know, so my kids, they're, they're grabbing for authority. And, and for them, their friends, you know, when their friends are confident, they see that as a source of authority, a source of truth. That's an issue for me, right? Um, maybe not when we're talking about, um, you know, the chances that the Lions have of making it to the Super Bowl. But, but if we're talking about right and wrong, I want my kids to know the difference between their father and their friends. Would you agree? Parents out there, shake your heads. I want them to know the difference between the source of authority that I have and the source of authority that their friends have because we have different motivations. I'm motivated out of a love and a, and, and a care for my kids in a way that their friends, how, how much they like their friends. Their friends do not have that. Their friends, you could say their motives are, are often corrupt. Like, um, your friends may love you, but they're also the people that are going to convince you to lick a flagpole in the middle of winter, right? <laughs> Not always the best source of truth. Um, this hit home for us uh, this summer. We were on vacation and we were near a lake um, and we were having dinner and we had talked to the kids about after dinner, we're going we're gonna to go swimming. And um, it was um, my four kids and uh, we had some friends that were with us. They also had four kids about the same age. So Eight kids, chaos, noise, party, wherever you go, uh, sometimes in a good way. Um, and uh, and we, were, we were cleaning up dinner, and we said, after dinner, we'll go. And uh, we're cleaning up. And after, after a couple minutes, my dad radar just kind of went off. And I was like, it is way too quiet for uh, eight kids being, uh, being out in the yard. So I went out and, and uh, was trying to find the kids, and, and um, half of them uh, were gone, and uh, one of my, my younger uh, children said that they had gone down to the lake. Uh, well, that's a problem in my house um, because um, for us, I mean, the lake was um, probably three blocks away. It was out of eyesight. It was out of earshot. And so we had very clear rules. You don't go down to the lake without parental supervision. Um, make sure your parent knows you're going and make sure your parent's with you. So I said, surely my kids didn't go to the lake. Um, but let me get on my bike and I'll drive, I'll ride down and, and see what's going on. And you can take that visual and do what you want to enjoy um, the idea of me riding a bike. Um, but I rode down. Sure enough, there they were, just getting in the water. Um, and, uh, and I called my sons over uh, in a very pastoral and calm, fatherly way. Asked them what they were doing. And, uh, and so we started having a conversation. Well, why, why did you come down? Well, well we said we were going to go to the lake. And so, yeah, but we know, we know the rules, that you don't come down here without a parent. And he said, well, well, our friend told us that, that he had permission from the parents. And I said, oh, is that, is, that, is that right? And I asked the friend. He's like, no, I clearly had. I definitely had your permission, uh, which is news to me because I hadn't given it. Um, and so we had this conversation about, about authority right? That, that um, the problem, good kid, loved the kid. He didn't have ill intentions for my, my kids, but he also really wanted to go swimming and he was willing to bend the truth a little bit to get there. Um, he didn't consider the relationship I have with my kids and our relationship with authority. Um, there's another thing he didn't consider. He didn't consider consequences. Like what would happen if, some, if something actually happened at the lake and parents didn't know where you were and um, we couldn't see or hear you. And, and to make that a little bit more poignant for me was that because of the confidence 
that, that they had permission. Um, my five-year-old son at the time had gone with them. So you can imagine how I felt and how I wanted them to understand the difference between my authority and their authority because sometimes um, those, those motives for, for what our friends are, are calling us to do are not always clear. So it's important for us uh, today as we talk about, as we're talking about these solas, what, what are these solas? Part of this question is, what is our source of truth? What is our source of authority um, in our lives that, that direct our life, our faith and our practice? And I want us to, uh, hopefully by the end of the day, to be clear about what that source of authority is. And, and so as Pastor Lyle said, we're, we're going through a series called The Five Solas. Um, you want, might want to know what those five solas are. Those, those five solas are essentially kind of a summary of beliefs and ideas that came out of this Reformation that, that Martin Luther and some others had started. Um, think of them like signposts. As we said, the, the church had kind of gotten off the rails. It had forgotten what it existed for. And so they wanted to establish through the Reformation, hey, this is what, um, what we believe the Bible teaches so that the church from now on doesn't get off the rails again. So it doesn't lose its way. So think of it that way. The solas are like signposts to help us to make sure as we get, get new and crazy ideas that we have some, 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 um, um, some rails that keep us on the track. So you may be asking, well, that's good, good and all that it's a, a um, summary of the Reformation. What was the Reformation? Well, the Reformation, um, it wasn't an event. Like, it didn't just happen uh, 500 years ago. It was, it was kind of a process, and it was a process of calling the church back to its roots, to faithfulness, to the teachings of Jesus and the Word of God. At that time, um, we kind of talked about kind of how it got it off its rails, but at this at this point in history, it's a it's a world power. The church in the first century uh, um, was tracked down, arrested, and it was fed to lions. Right, that was what it meant to be part of the church. The church was scattered; it was marginalized. But but over 1,500 years, it had it had um, risen to a position of power in in, in Europe and. And in uh, Southern Africa, and it, it became a superpower. It had its own army. If you disagreed with the church, they would send an army <laughs> to your city, to your country. It was a big deal. And it had gotten itself completely enmeshed politically and financially and ethically enmeshed in the world. It had lost its way. It had lost its first love. And what happens in the Reformation is that inside the church, the spirit begins to move in the faithful and begins to awaken sleepers. What I mean is just the, the sleeping faithful that their eyes aren't open, begins to open their eyes through the Word of God. So we have, we have men like Wycliffe in Oxford who, who translates uh, the Bible into English for the first time because he felt like people needed to get the Word of God um, uh, unfiltered. Uh, he gets chased out of the church. We got John, uh, I think it's John Huff, who, who uh, in the same way has the same idea. And, and John is one of those people that was tied to a stake and lit on fire for believing that the Bible is the ultimate authority and not the church. And so what God does is He takes people like them, He, he, he brings them back through His Word 
to call the church back. And Martin Luther is one of those people. But this is something that God has done throughout history. Throughout the history of his people, God has continually done this. You may not know these names, but they're names like Josiah. Josiah was a young king in Israel um, who was rebuilding the temple, stumbled on the word of God, and called all the people back to God. Once he discovered the word, it, it reminded him of who God was, and, and he called the people back. You have people like Nehemiah and Ezra that do the same thing as they rebuild the temple walls, that they begin to proclaim the truth to the people, that they would know God. What's interesting with this is I was just thinking through how God has used his word throughout history. It re reminded me of, of one of the, the, the greatest examples we have of him providing his word to people. And, and most of us know this story or, or we've um, seen images of this story, the images of Moses coming down from the mountain. Are you, are you familiar with that? That Moses, he had the tablets and he's coming down uh, the mountain. He had gone up to the mountain. God had given him not just the Ten Commandments, but the, but the law. And it's really interesting um, how it describes it uh, when he does this. It says after he, um, this is out of Exodus. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it. It says, when he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. You want to, under, you want to understand who the author of Scripture is? There it is. That, that the tablets that Moses had were inscribed by the finger of God. And he gave this word to Moses to, to take to the people, to, to, to help them know who he is and help to guide their lives. And do we remember what happened? Anybody remember what happens when Moses comes down? People lost their minds, right? <laughs> like like they, Moses would take him too long and they just said, man, I don't know if he's ever coming back. So they pool all their gold and they they create a golden calf. Maybe you've heard that before, uh, the idea of the golden calf, right? So they create a golden calf and they begin to worship it. They've lost their minds. And Moses comes down and Moses, in his rage, takes the word of God, got it written, inscribed by the finger of God, and he crashes it at the base of the mountain. He destroys the word of God. He's so enraged with the people. After he does this, he... You know, he starts to he think better of it um, as God, God's rage uh, begins to grow against the people. And, and Moses starts to interact with God and starts to intercede for the people and asking for God to relent and not to judge them, um, to give them another shot. And there's a really interesting interaction. There's a lot going on there, um, but there's a really interesting interaction is that as God is speaking with, or excuse me, Moses is speaking with God, he says this, he said, Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me, lead these people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You also said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, Moses says to God, please teach me your ways and I will know you. Teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. So Moses says, look, we're not going to make it without you. The only way we're going to make it is if you, if you teach me your ways. Why? So that he would know God. Not just know about God, but that he would know God. And you know what God does? We don't always talk about this, but what God, God does is he takes him back up the mountain and he rewrites the tablets. He rewrites the word of God with his finger so that, that Moses can have um, in stone 
the word of God, that, that the people of God would be able to, to know his ways and to know him. It's pretty beautiful. Why would he do that? Couldn't he just say, well, man, I told it all to you. You'll remember it. Share it. He's a good father. He doesn't want there to be any doubt. And so he writes it in stone. Why? Because there's going to be a king someday named Josiah that's going to need to find the word of God. There's going to be a guy who's sent to rebuild the temple named Nehemiah who's going to need to find the word of God. There's going to be a, a monk in Germany someday that's going to need to find the word of God. And so God, as a good heavenly father, says, I want this written in stone. Let there be no doubt who I am and what I'm about. It's the word of God. One of those guys that finds the word of God and is transformed is Paul. And so we're going to um, open up Scripture today after the longest introduction in history. Um, we're going uh, to root this series, the solas, in Romans. And the reason we do that is because, um, one, that, that as, as Paul expounds um, the, the truth of what Jesus' words meant and what his life meant, we find all of these um, kind of roadmaps or, or, or road signs in the book of Romans. And if we're going to start with Sola Scriptura, we, we sure better lock it into Scripture, right? Um, and so um, we're going to look at Romans 1, 1 through 4. Um, because of time, I'm not going to have you stand for it. If you need to stand, you can stand in your heart. Um, and uh, I'm just going to read it and we're going to go. So Romans 1, 1 through 4 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's going on here? Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. I'm called to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that gospel has been written down in the scriptures and it's all about Jesus. So as Paul is about to go into in, some pretty deep theology that, that, um, that is extremely important for our church, he starts, he starts right here by establishing authority. Now Paul has a pretty good resume. He studied under one of the, the greatest teachers of his time, Gamaliel. Um, he, he's, a, he's a pretty big deal, yet when he comes to teach, he says, I am a, I'm a servant of Christ. Uh, that word can also be translated slave, servant, or slave. That, that's not, it's not a high society position, right? What he's doing is he's, is he's saying, I want you to understand that as, as I'm about to teach about wh who Jesus is and what it meant, that, that um, what Scripture has to say is what has primary authority. Right? He's called to be um, an apostle set apart for the gospel that was written in the Scriptures. He establishes Scripture as its primary authority, and that's what Sola Scriptura is all about. One of those road signs that we have is that, is that we believe as a church in, in Scripture alone. And when we talk about Scripture alone, this is what we mean. Four big ideas that come with Scripture alone. One, if you're taking notes, is that it's our ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. Number two is that it's sufficient. 
Talk about that in a minute. Number three, it's inerrant, meaning it has no error. And number four is that it's clear. It's intended to be clear. So those are the four major ideas that come with this idea of Scripture alone. That's what sola scriptura means. So what do you mean by ultimate authority? Um, ultimate authority says this, is that, is that of all the um, sources of truth in our world, um, Scripture is intended to be above all of them. So, uh, so we look at it this way, is that, is that we hold the Bible like this. One way to put that is the idea that, that the Bible interprets us. We don't interpret it. It has the final say. It is the final authority. In the time of the Reformation from Martin Luther, um, no one was actually trying to diminish uh, the, the authority of Scripture. They believed it was the Word of God. They believed it was inerrant. Um, but they tried to do something else is what they tried to do is they tried to lift a couple other things up to the same level. So they lifted up tradition of the church and they lifted up the, um, uh, the words of the leadership. So the Pope and the Cardinals and, and what they would call the magistrate or magisterium. They, they tried to hold them all up and they said they're all the final authority. Anyone see a problem with that? I have a mantra that I live by that if you have co-leaders, you got no leaders. Um, uh, there's, it's, you can't have three things that are the final. Someone's got to be the final authority. And one way to illustrate that is to understand if, you know, from the, from the church standpoint, you're kind of looking up and you're seeing these three things and they all have authority over you. And maybe that, that doesn't um, bother you at that moment. But if you look at the idea of like, what would it be like to be one of those cardinals or the pope? How would they view it? It's not like this, right? Because they, ha they in themselves have authority. So the Bible is here. It's on the same plane, tradition and the word of God and me. We're all in the same authority. But how would that work? How do you know what the Bible says in that system? It's got to be interpreted. Someone's got to know what it says. Well, that would, be, that would be me because I have equal authority with it, but I have to tell you what it means. So the Bible isn't actually equal at that moment. Uh, at that point, I stand on top of it. Because I'm now the vehicle for which you could know truth. So my interpretation becomes the highest authority. So in that system, it's not equality so much as now you've got the church being the highest authority and the Bible is now subject to it. Does that make sense? This is a very dangerous position to be in. Would you agree? Some of you are even nervous right now that it at least appears that I'm standing on the Bible. I actually have really strong calves. So I'm just... <laughs> Holding it up. We don't ever want to be in that position. And so one of the signposts for us coming out of the Reformation is that Scripture alone is our highest authority. That does not mean that we don't have other sources of authority. The Bible establishes leadership uh, within the church and authority within the church. Uh, we believe in the authority of government. Uh, I believe in, you know, when we talk about truth, <laughs> truth, like we can get truth from other sources. We can get truth from science and from Alexa and, and even your own logic. Those are all sources of truth. We're not saying that they aren't, but what we are saying is that they're all subject to, to Scripture, that Scripture sits over and above all of them. So if I'm confused and I'm not sure, I'm going to go with the Bible and what it teaches over what I think or what I feel. 
Martin Luther put it this way. He said, Scripture alone is the true Lord and master of all writings and doctrine on earth. If that is not granted, then what is Scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and humans' teaching. So he's saying, if we don't keep it up here, and we begin to bring it down here, it becomes equal with all the other ideas and books and thoughts that are, that are written. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that this was written by the creator of the universe. The rest of those works were created like people like you and me. There's a huge difference between those authors. What he's saying is if you, if you begin to erode this as your ultimate authority, then everything becomes, how do you know what's true? Because there's a lot of competing ideas out there on what is true. And he says, the Bible, as it's been given, highest authority. That's ultimate authority under sola scriptura. So that's one. The second one is sufficiency. It's the idea that the Bible is sufficient for faith and practice. Second Timothy says it this way, And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's pretty clear what it says there. It's saying, if you have this, you have everything you need to know to know Jesus and to come to saving faith in Jesus. This is all we need. We don't need an extra book. Um, we don't need, uh, you know, um, some video series uh, from a blog, from Southern. We don't need those things to know who Jesus is to come to saving faith. We don't need those things. It doesn't mean that those things are bad. It's just saying that this is sufficient. If this is all you have, you could come to know who Jesus is, come to saving faith, and you could live a life that honors God. That's what sufficiency means. Wayne Grudem, Wayne Grudem summarized it this way. He said, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting imperfectly, and for obeying imperfectly. So when we talk about the signpost being sola scriptura, we're saying not only is it our ultimate authority, but we believe if this is all we had, we would be okay. And that, that you and I, we don't, we don't need a mediator uh, for this book, that you and I, we can pick up this book and we could know Jesus. That's all, that's all we need. We don't need a, a tour guide. Um, we, we, can, we can know him just from the word of God. And that is an amazing truth. That was in Luther's day, uh, a shot across the bow. Because if they were no longer the mediators, if the church no longer had to mediate, then they started to lose power. That's why it was such a big deal for Martin Luther to question, um, to question that idea. So we've got ultimate authority. We have um, sufficiency. The next one is inerrancy, that the Bible is without error. So that the Word of God is inspired and therefore without error. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration of the original manuscripts. That's a lot of really fancy words to say that the meaning of each word in the original manuscript that was given by God was meaningfully chosen and inspired. That we believe that as the Bible was given, that, that every um, word um, was meaningfully chosen and, 
and that it was the Word of God and without error. Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, they treat the Old Testament and the New Testament writings as truthful and authoritative for the Word of God. There have been lots of books and lots of ink spilled over this idea. I don't have time to go in, uh, through all the proofs and, and, and all of the arguments, but this is simply what we believe, that as John 17, 17 says, the Word, your Word, is truth. That the Word of God is truth. It self-attests I know that that's a problem for debaters because it's really easy to prove something that's wrong, but it's hard to prove something is true. Um, for us, um, we believe that this is the inspired Word of God. That doesn't, that doesn't apply to your understanding. That doesn't apply to your, uh, to your interpretation. It applies to the original manuscripts. And so as we, even as we have translations, and um, translations, can they have errors? Possibly they can have errors, and that's why we have a lot of them, so that we can, we can try to understand what the original text meant. Because that's where we know it's perfect. So, three ideas, ultimate, authority, sufficiency, inerrancy, and then the last one is clarity. Clarity, the idea of clarity is simply that the Bible was given as a gift. It's given as a gift from a good father who knows how to give good gifts, and it was intended to be understood. That you and I, um, this is not. Uh, this does not need to be decoded. It doesn't need a decoder ring. There's not a hidden Bible code in this that only certain people can figure out. This is a book that was written to be extremely clear, so that we could understand who God is, who Jesus is, and come to faith in Him. Now, there may be some things in there that you're like, "Yeah, but I don't understand everything." That's that's okay. What's intended to be understood is clear. And there may be some areas where we're like, man, someday I'm going to have to ask Jesus. But in terms of what we needed to know to know God and to have, come to salvation and to live a life honoring God, that part is clear. As the psalmist says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light into my path. Can't be a lamp and can't be a light if we can't understand it. And so if, if you can read it in your language, in your vernacular, it should be clear. That was the intent of God. So those are the four concepts that come under Sola Scriptura. That's what we believe as a church. Now the question is, why does that matter? We're like, yeah, 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 we, we know. We're not taking a seminary class. Why do I need to know these things? Why does it matter? Well, well we live, you've got to understand, we live in a world today that, that truth is under attack. If you haven't been paying attention, um, truth, even the idea of truth is under attack. I mean, we literally live in a day where the word literally is used figuratively, right? <laughs> Someone was telling me after the first service, they said they've actually changed it in some of the dictionaries that it now has a definition that means figuratively. So we don't, we literally don't have a word that means literally anymore. <laughs> like that's the world we live in. And don't get worried, I'm not going to get super political here, but, but we have, like, if you turn on the news right now, um, we, we hear, we hear I don't, if I hear the word fake news one more time, like, my head's literally going to explode, right? Um, <laughs> but we live in a world where this is a reality. Fake news is a reality. And what is that? Well, well, some people are actually creating news stories, and because we're gullible people that if it's on a website and it has a picture, we assume that it's got to be true, and those are actually fake stories. That's called fake news. Then you have over here, you have other stories that are absolutely true, but they're inconvenient. And so those are also called fake news. So everything is fake, which means what? I don't know what that means. Everything's fake news. I don't get it. In my day, we had facts. 
and then we had fiction. And if you pass fiction off as facts, we called those lies. Very clear, black and white. Now we have facts, and if I don't like those facts, I just create other than facts. Everything's a fact, that means, well, if everything's true, nothing's true, right? There has to be some, something, some authority that says this is true, this is not true. That's the world we live in. So we live in a world that says, hey, come on, we're enlightened. The enlightenment has gone by, we are smart, we have, uh, we have reason and, and thought. Surely we've outgrown this arcane book and this antique religion. Why, why would you, it's silly to continue to believe those things. Or, or we're, we're attacked by sentimentalism that says, does, it really, does that really feel good? I mean, truth is really what feels good. So, so, so what if you just stop believing those things and believe these things because it just feels better? And, and really, look at culture. I mean, culture um, testifies that all these people, the crowd says that this is true. So, so just believe it. It's easier. Are you guys feeling those pressures? Well, what's going on there? Those things are just, just pressure to say, hey, just bring it down a peg. Because if, if there is an absolute truth, this is what's going on in the world, is that if there's an absolute truth in which you believe, then somehow that, has, that, that can impose itself on me. And this is an issue of power, just like it was an issue of power for Martin Luther and the church. That if what you want to do is hold this up, then that may have implications for the whole world. So if we could just bring that down a peg, then we all have equal power. There is no authority. We can all be... Well, we can all be our own gods, right? At that point. What's going on in our culture right now is that these pressures, because of this, because it's a power, power dynamic of is there truth or not truth, they just want you to recant. Just a little bit. Just recant just a little bit. What do I mean by recant? Martin Luther was asked to recant of his beliefs. He was brought before what would be considered like the Congress, only the Congress was ready to light you on fire. Um, and, uh, and Luther was, was asked to recant of his beliefs. What were his beliefs? Well, his beliefs were, were, were really controversial things, like, like we should not charge people to be saved. Like people shouldn't pay to be saved. And, and the Bible should be our ultimate authority, not, not man. I mean, those aren't crazy ideas, but he was asked to recant. And and Luther famously does not recant. Why not? Because for him, the Bible was true. He encountered truth through the written Word of God that God had preserved throughout the ages. And he said, I, I must reckon with the truth. I cannot recant. And he was willing to risk everything, including his life. Now for us, we're not put in that position. This isn't a position that you and I are going to be most likely aren't going to be put in uh, in our lifetime. But what's happening right now is we're being asked to recant just little by little. Just question the validity and the truth of this just a little by little. Man, that doesn't feel right. But don't go and appeal to Scripture. Just appeal to sentiment. Appeal to what feels right, what looks right, what seems right. Man, if you're worried about maybe, maybe what we're talking about not being biblical, well, we'll just question whether um, the Bible is inerrant. 
we'll question whether the Bible is sufficient. We can question whether the Bible is clear just so that you can remove it from that position of authority in your life. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in our world. And it's like a friend. Seem like that, man, the way they say that and the way, that, the, the way they articulated that post uh, really tugged at my heartstrings, but they're like friends that want to go to the lake. They have an ulterior motive of getting you down to the lake. It has nothing to do whether what's best for you. And, and the proverb, Proverbs, says, Proverbs 24 says this. This is what I think is really important for us today as a church. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And what happens? Poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. I don't think that poverty and that scarcity is, is about possessions. Or if it is about possessions, it's the one thing that we do possess, which is the truth of God. He's written down so that we would not have any doubts. And, and if, we, if we take a little sleep, a little folding of the hands, be like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good argument. Maybe I don't need to test it against Scripture. That's the danger that we're in and the danger for our children and our children's children and the church that will come out of sojourn data. And I've watched this happen over the course of the last, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 years. And I've seen friends, especially now, it seems like it's ramping up. Brothers and sisters that have given their life to Christ that that, that I've served alongside, that I've, I've cried with and prayed with and rejoiced with. And, and they're starting to recant. Just a little here, just a little there. Just a man, that was a really good, that was a, that was a, that was a really good video with great lighting and some music in the background. And when I, when I listened to that, my heart was moved. And now I'm not so sure what the Bible has to say. They're giving into popular views on issues. They're being pressured. They're building up these straw men that say, well, the church acts like this and that's wrong. And so therefore the Bible, but it's a straw man. It's not real. I'm not up here saying that the church is perfect. I'm up here saying that the Bible is. That God's revelation is. And now what happens for them is that they're like, you know, I've been rethinking my positions and, and I'm starting to think that I'm pretty smart. I'm starting to think that I've now, I've now outgrown this book. And we get to this position. What is, what is that? Does that remind you of anything? Does it remind you of the original temptation? Do you remember in the garden? Did God really say that? Is God's word, is it really true? Is it really authoritative? You know, God's holding back from you. He knows that if you take a bite of the apple that you can know good and evil and you'll be what? You'll be like God. Does position look any different than the papacy of 1500? It's not just an issue that happened 500 years ago. This is an issue that, that, that can be affecting our church and, and affecting our legacy. That if we don't establish that the reformers did, that, that our highest authority is the Scripture, then we could go down that same path. God and all His wisdom. This is, not, this is not a sermon about making you feel bad about where Scripture is in your life. This is, this is a message about the love of God that He cared so much that we wouldn't go down that path that He wrote it down so that we could find it. 
so that the truth would be clear. So as, as Paul points out that, that he is a slave to Christ, a, a, an apostle of the Gospel, that we would never lose the truth of that good news. It's the only authority in our lives that, that was created out of pure, uncorrupted love. Even my love for my kids can be corrupted by my laziness or my selfishness or, or my own heart, but, but not this truth. And the purpose, as Paul points out, is the Gospel. The Gospel to remind us that of, of who Jesus is, that while we were in rebellion, maybe even leaving this on a shelf or trying to stand on top of this, even when we did that, even when the church Medieval times did that, that, that God loved them so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for them and to die for you and to die for me. To live the life we should have lived, live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died. And He did all of that so that we could have eternal life with Him. That's the message that He does not want to be lost. That's why He, he, he galvanized it. He, he, he wrote it with His finger so that we would not lose it. My, my, my challenge to you, my challenge to myself is certainly this, is, is that we would be diligent in our faith. That we would be aware of the forces that are trying to get us just little by little, just little by little to recant of just small things so that eventually the whole thing comes tumbling down. Be diligent. Don't recant. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying don't be willing to be challenged. I want us to be able to listen to ideas and be challenged by our friends and be able to have an answer. But what I want you to do is I want you to take, you know, whenever you feel like, man, I'm not sure if that's true. What source do you go to decide ultimately? Is it true? I want it to be this source. I said in the first book, for, uh, in the first sermon, um, if you're wondering if something is true, don't take it to Facebook. Take it to the good book. And I made that up last service, and now I think it's going to be my mantra. Uh, so now when you look at Brad House on Twitter, it's Brad House. Don't take it to Facebook. Take it to the good book. Um, that's where I want us to be as a people. I know this is what Pastor Lyle wants us to be because this is a gift. It's a gift from your Father. The best gift we could have so that we could know Jesus. So open the gift. Don't put it on the shelf. Every time you put this on the shelf and you think, I'll get to it tomorrow, there's a risk that someday... It could be there for months and years. And unfortunately for the church in 1500, it might have sat there for much longer. Don't neglect the gift. Open the gift. And so, today as we go to communion, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate, we celebrate the truth of the Gospel that has been um, preserved for us in God's Word. And every Sunday, we come together and we celebrate that truth that that Jesus Christ gave His life for us. That, that as we take the bread, we remember that His body was broken for us. In our stead, we, we, we take the wine that was uh, an image of His blood poured out for our sins that we could be forgiven. That, that is the good news of the Gospel that, that, that God wanted to preserve for us. So we're going to take communion now. If, if you're new here, we, we, uh, we take the bread, break off a piece, and you can dip it we have both juice and wine. The wine is very cleverly marked by twine. And the idea is there that we would remember and be thankful this morning that God wrote it down, that He loved us so much that, that He wanted it to be clear that we would never forget.
pray with me.